Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, uh, someone was sharing with me that the, the 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 cool new blessing to 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 wish on other people is stay negative. So, um, you know, obviously we're always trying to emphasize the positive and everything like that. But in today's day and age, a, a negative prognosis is a good thing. And um, I just got my negative prognosis after having gotten a positive prognosis. And, and it gave me pause to just think about because, um, you know, there's there's a blessing that you say uh, when you're um, when you survive a, a, a life threatening um, situation. It, it's called the Thanksgiving blessing or in Hebrew, we say um, we call it benching gomel. Um, and so the question that I have, and I have to ask a, a Rav, I have to ask a, a Torah authority, um, because I see both points of it, and I'll just kind of work it out for you, because I, I think the, the, the logic of this is sort of interesting. Um, would I bench Gomel for my, for my COVID situation? So on the one hand, you know, perhaps instinctually, you would say, well, of course, of course, this is a, a life-threatening illness. People, God for you know, Rahman al-Litzan, you know, unfortunately have have passed from it. And so if you got it and you survived it, a thousand percent you should you should say the Thanksgiving blessing, Benj Koma. Um however, my symptoms were, thank God, very mild. And I was, as far as I know, never in a life threatening situation myself. And so based on that. I could also see the the Torah point that you say, well, were you ever like on a respirator? Were you ever in a situation where you feared for your life? And the answer, thank God, is no. So I could see how the answer would be that you don't bench Como. You don't say the Thanksgiving blessing. So this is this is a um this is the type of question that you that you ask a rabbi and and he will give you the answer and then you'll, you know, follow his uh his understanding. But it's it's interesting to see both sides of it because, you know, when it comes to this particular blessing about um, um, thanking God for a life-threatening situation, um, if you want to be more spiritual-minded, and th- th- this certainly is a legitimate thought, but we don't, we don't, Jewish law doesn't go by what I'm about to say, is you can say every day is a life-threatening situation. Like any time you get through the day, you, you've got to thank God for preserving your life one more day. And there certainly is a, a spiritual logic to that and an authentic um, reality to that. Um, you know, one of the interesting ideas, um, you know, the last words we're supposed to say, you know, before we go to bed, is Shema Yisrael. Now, we know that the last... Words we're supposed to say, ideally, before we pass from this world, you know, as as we say at the end of 120, 
Ishma Yisrael. And one of the interesting things about ending each day um, with those words, well, you know, on a sort of like a nitty-gritty level, perhaps a person will pass in their sleep, in which case now you can ensure that these were our last words. Okay, that, that's true, but I'd like to make a sort of a perhaps a more spiritual point, which is that every day is a miniature lifetime. And so when you say the Shema at the end of the day, there is an authentic an authenticity to to those being the last words of, of your lifetime, because every day is a life. In which case, if you make it through the day, it's miraculous. In which case, you should bench Gomo every day. But if you bench Gomo every day, then Gomo loses its meaning. So, so you know, as as I like to say, if you eat chocolate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, chocolate ceases to be chocolate. So, 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 so we're back to the question: Would I say it or not? So, uh, the answer is I don't know. And I have to ask uh, an authority on this, and and I'll let you know the answer because you know these things are interesting. Um, but I will say, on a more personal level, just as a personal reflection of this experience, I managed to make it through. I don't know how many months exactly, eight nine months without getting COVID, and during that period of time, my you know my my prayer to God was please. Um, save my life and please um, please keep this uh, away from me so that I can live to serve you. That, that Those were, you know, prayers that I uttered. Um, and I was very happy that I didn't get it and that God, in fact, was, was saving me from this. And then I got it. <laughs> but then I didn't die. Thank God. So, so, you know, it, it, it just, it's, it, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this because in a way you could say, well, it's a lesser form of protection because you got it and everything's from God. So you got it. So he didn't protect you from it seemingly. Or you can say something that feels more uh, intuitive to me, which is that you even had it and God saved you from it. In other words, before it was a theoretical thing that God was keeping you alive because you didn't have it to begin with. Now you had it and God was actively keeping you alive. You know, it's even more of a form of protection. So, you know, the mind goes back and forth. It's, 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 it's hard to process these things. You have to live with these ideas and integrate them. Okay, so now let's transition and we're in a new period of the year and a, a new period of the Torah. And of course, whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in the world. So if it seems like new things are going on in the world, Myra, <laughs> um, well, new things are going on in the Torah. So there is a turning point um, taking place. And that's very real. And, and, and that is the concept of exile. It's the concept of slavery. And God's uh, redeeming the Jewish people um, from 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 the reality of of this slavery, and of course uh, Moshe, you know the, the the according to the Rambam at least the greatest person that ever lived, right? And and you know that's it's wow, you know it says it says Mashiach, 
Mashiach, the ultimate redeemer, is, is, is going to be greater than Moshe in certain ways, but not prophecy. Moshe remains, according to Torah understanding, the greatest prophet that ever lived and ever will live. And so we have Moshe Rabbeinu mentioned for the first time in this week's Parsha, and of course he will be um, with us for, for, the, for the rest of the Torah. Um, so so that's, a, that's a major, major, major idea, because Moshe is light, right? Moshe is basically divine light. When Moshe was born, he was surrounded by light. Like, um, so, and, and that is the original light of creation, because basically Moshe now is going to clarify all the building blocks of reality for us by revealing the Torah, okay? So it's, um, it's a big shift that's going on with his introduction. So what I would like to discuss is something that, um, that I, I believe is a, a fascinating topic and um, one um, that, that we have a chance to explore more deeply, which is the conversation between Moshe and God at the burning bush. Um, and let me just sort of like uh, introduce it by, 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 by saying that if you, if you read this section in the Torah, the, the back and forth between God and Moshe uh, by the burning bush, it'll take you a few minutes to read, uh, maybe less. And the Talmud says that that event, that discussion between Moshe and God, um, which consisted of God basically telling Moshe, you've got to take all the Jews out of Egypt and you've got to bring them back here. Um, a lot of people don't know that the burning bush was on, on Mount Sinai. And it says it right in the Torah itself, um, which we'll discuss a little bit more later. That's a very significant piece of information that the burning bush was on Mount Sinai. But anyway, how long did that conversation take? Meaning to say, Moshe refuses, does, does not accept this mission to take the Jews out of Egypt. And, and, and eventually he does, obviously. But the question is, how long did that conversation go on for? How long did Moshe say no to God? And the Talmud says something unbelievable. For seven days. For seven days, Moshe refused this shlichus, this mission. So the big giant question is, why? Why? And what was the nature of that conversation? Right? Okay. So this is, this is a very, very big question. So let's just circle back to this idea that the burning bush was by Mount Sinai. And I think that's a very important point because God says to Moshe, um, I want you to take the Jews out of Egypt, and bring them back here. Meaning bring, meaning the whole exodus, the whole liberation of slavery of the Jewish people was for the express point of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's a major, major headline. It's a very important that you fix this piece of information in your head when you try to understand all of these events. The reason is because people have a much more casual Understanding, which is which, which will basically miss the point. 
And that, that, that casual misunderstanding is the following, which is that God wanted to take the Jews out of Egypt. You know, they were suffering. He, wanted, he was showing mercy. He wanted to bring them out. And then it's sort of like, well, now I got all these people in the desert. What do I do now? Well, I don't know. Oh, I know. I'll give them the Torah. That'll keep them busy. <laughs> that wasn't what happened. <laughs> very, very important. That was not what happened. The very point of bringing them out of Egypt was to give them the Torah. That, that is the point. And God says that very explicitly in the Torah itself. He says to Moshe, it says that the burning bush was by Horev, and everybody knows that Horev is another name for Sinai. Um, and God says, you will take them out of Egypt and bring them back here. That was the point. Okay. So now, let's return back to our other question, which we'll spend more time on, which is a, a bigger question, which is that if the whole event of the burning bush was seven days, what was going on during those seven days? Why was Moshe refusing this mission? What did he really want? Let's ask the question in that way, because that's, that's, that's what we're going to explore. Moshe seemingly had something else in mind. What was, what was that? Okay, so we're going to get into that. But before I do, let me just cover three points about the burning bush, which are just... Uh, just very good things to know, and we'll sort of like frame this event because, you know, whenever we learn Torah, it can't just be an idea, you have to be there. So so all of us have to be Moshe at the burning bush. And for us to be Moshe at the burning bush, to understand this on a deeper level, we've got to really be able to kind of picture what was going on there. So, so the first thing, and um, I forgot where I read this, it was from one of the great Torah commentators, the first thing we have to try to visualize is what the burning bush actually looked like. And I read one detail that for me was a game changer. And <clears throat> you'll see the entire event differently. So I'm asking you to visualize what I'm, what I'm about to tell you, okay? Because if you told me that Moshe saw a bush that was on fire... It's not so impressive. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of things on fire. So what's the big deal that it was on fire? Well, God is speaking to him through the flames. That's obviously very impressive. But just the idea of a bush that's on fire, not so much. So what is this detail? And again, try to visualize this. The leaves of a bush are green. This bush was consumed in flames, but the green remained bright green inside the flames. <laughs> Do you understand? The leaves were not burning. <laughs> it's not that there was a bush that was on fire. There was a bush that was on fire, but the fire was not consuming the bush. Can you picture that? Can you picture a bush with bright green leaves inside fire and the green is not becoming any less green? 
That's remarkable. That's miraculous. That's stunning. So that's detail number one. None of us have ever seen anything like that, by the way. So it's, it's very amazing. Detail number two. I heard in the name of the Katskarebi, many people saw the burning bush and walked right by it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? There's a related, there's a related teaching to that, which is that many people heard the words lech lecha, go to Israel, but only Avraham actually went. Very, very similar teaching. So, the entire mission of freeing the Jews, which is, as we explained, um, part and parcel of receiving the Torah from heaven, all begins with Moshe going, hey, what is that? That's really unusual. Let me take a closer look. Do you understand how it you know, this is very similar to a teaching that we talked about a few weeks ago about how Yosef saves the entire world from famine. How does he do it? By interpreting Pharaoh's dream. But how does he interpret Pharaoh's dream? Because someone said to Pharaoh, there's a person who knows how to interpret dreams. But how did he know that Yosef knows how to interpret dreams? Because Yosef was walking in prison one day and saw two people who looked sad and said, oh. Now, if you're in Egyptian prison thousands of years ago, I would imagine everyone looks horribly sad on a daily basis. And yet Yosef, in his incredible sensitivity, in his incredible love for his fellow person, saw someone who looked unusually sad and went out of his way and said, hey, is everything okay? And because he showed that person-to-person concern between two people, he sets a chain reaction in effect where he literally saves the entire world from famine. Because he noticed another person who looked sad and said, hey, is everything okay? the entire world becomes saved. Because Moshe Rabbeinu sees something unusual and says, hey, what's that? I want to look into that. I want to investigate that. What's going on over there? Because of that, the Torah comes down from heaven. (laughs) Do you... Do you you see how important it is for us to keep our eyes and our ears open? And not just to other people, but to unusual things, right? Like that burning bush wasn't even a person. The animate and the inanimate. Showing sensitivity, awareness. Okay, that's point number two about the burning bush. Now let's do point number three. And then we'll get back to our original question. Why was Moshe saying no for seven days? What did Moshe have in mind? So point number three comes from Rav Matasyahu Solomon. 
the Mishkiach of Lakewood Yeshiva. And I heard him make this point, and I, I was just forever taken by it, you know. Can't think of the Moshe approaching the burning bush the same way again after hearing this teaching. So, so Hashem sees Moshe approach the burning bush, and then Hashem says to Moshe, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So he asks a question. Once you hear this question, you'll, you'll go, oh, that's such an obvious question, but it never occurred to me before I heard it. So, so the question is, why didn't God tell him to take off his shoes before he stepped on the holy ground? <laughs> you hear the question, why did God wait for Moshe seemingly to do something wrong and then correct him when he could have told him beforehand so that he never would have made this infraction to begin with? And the awesome, 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 awesome answer that Rabbi Solomon gives is that it wasn't holy until Moshe approached the burning bush. In other words, it was the very act of Moshe wanting to investigate truth in this world that transformed that land into holy ground. So God couldn't have said beforehand, don't take off your shoes because you're going to be stepping on holy ground because it wasn't holy yet. Moshe made it holy by saying, what's going on? What's going on? I want to understand this world better. God, I want to understand you better. That transformed the ground into something holy. And just like when we investigate the world, when we think about the nature of reality, we bring holiness and we sanctify the entire world through our efforts. We have that ability. Or I'll say it a different way. I heard this from Rabbi Manus Friedman, who, who made a very awesome point. He said, you know, many people think, you know, we, we, we make blessings over food before we eat them. By the way, the Talmud says something very, very strong. You ready for this? That if you eat without saying a blessing first, you're stealing from God. Can you imagine? It's, it's theft if you don't say a blessing. Very, very strong idea, very powerful idea. So, but, but, but here's what many people think, which is that I have this, say, this cookie, right? And this cookie is a spiritually neutral object. And then I say a blessing over, over the cookie. I say, God, thank you, God, this comes from you. And now, because I've said that blessing, I have transformed this spiritual, neutral object into something sanctified, and then I eat it. So that's one level. But between you and me, it's not so deep. <laughs> so what, is, what does Rabbi Freeman say? He says something much more profound. He says, God fills the entire world and exists beyond this world, which means this entire world already is holy, which means that cookie that you're about to eat is already holy. So what am I doing then when I say a blessing? I am revealing the fact that it's holy. 
I'm not making it holy, but I'm uncovering. I'm uncovering the holiness that's there and revealing it to myself and the whole world. You see, you know, you ever, I always think of this example. You know, I think we've all, at some point, experiences where you, you, you get out of a shower and, and the, the mirror is all fogged up. And then you kind of take a towel or your hand or whatever it is and you wipe the fog off the mirror and you, wow, you reveal, right? You reveal and that's what it is. There's kind of this fog of concealment in the world. And when you do mitzvahs and when you make blessings and when you learn Torah and when you express love and kindness for other people, you reveal the holiness that's all around you, that's just sort of been concealed and covered over and is waiting for us to conceal it. And that's point number three. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu did, right? He revealed the holiness that was there. And what an auspicious beginning to bringing the Torah down to heaven, from heaven down to earth, right? which is continuing this process of revelation that God is absolutely everywhere and in everything. Okay. So now let's get back to our headline question. Now hopefully we're, we've got a better sense. We can all be Moshe standing by the, the burning bush for this, this conversation. We're seeing the green leaves, the bright green leaves that are on fire but aren't any less green, right? We're going out of our way to investigate it. We're turning like just regular ground, right? We're revealing the holiness that's in it. We're making it holy, however you want to say it. Okay, so the conversation begins between God and Moshe at the burning bush with Moshe asking for God's name. He says, you know, the Jewish people are going to ask me, who, who, who sent me? And, 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 and what should I tell them? And God gives a very um, amazing answer, but a very amazing answer that the next, very next verse in the Torah sort of like um, raises a difficulty in, 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 in how Hashem answers. And um, God says, the name that you should tell them is Ekia. Asher Ekia. I will be what I will be. That is the name of God that God tells um, Moshe Rabbeinu to communicate. And by the way, you know, I feel always compelled to give as an introduction, whenever we talk about names of God, you should know that that we're only talking about the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, right? The, the, the only God, the only power. You know, Judaism doesn't say our God is stronger than your God to other religions. Judaism says something much more radical. Judaism says there is no other power. Only God exists. There is only Hashem. The only thing that exists is Hashem. So, so, so when we talk about different names of God, we're only talking about Hashem. So how are we to understand this practically speaking? Because, um, you know, people who uh, misrepresent the Torah and who don't understand the Torah uh, try to, you know, tw- 
twist and turn these different names, and it's it's just it's 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 ignorance. It's ignorance at best. It's ignorance. At worst, it's 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 nefarious. Um, so how are do we, how are we to understand on a very simple level? So so um, you know, just think about yourself. I'll, I'll I'll use myself as an example here, but you can imagine uh, yourself right now. So uh, my my children call me daddy, right? My children's friends call me Mister Sachs, right? My 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 wife like on a good day calls me sweetheart, right? Uh, my friends call me David. Uh, you know the person who I cut off in traffic calls me hey you, right? So so as you can see. I have a lot of names, <laughs> you know, and if you think about yourself, you, you also have a lot of names. And what are those different names um, contingent on? Because we're only talking about you or we're only talking about me in this example. Um, it's how you appear in that situation. So if I'm appearing as the, um, you know, as the father to my children, I'm daddy. You know, if I'm, you know, making a deposit at a bank, I'm Mr. Sex. So the circumstances and how I am revealing myself in the moment dictate what name I will be called by. And the same is true in the Torah. If God is revealing himself um, in a time of he's saving the Jewish people, well, then the name Yudke Vavke, which, you know, also means love, will, will be used, right? Because God is manifesting himself in a, in a place of, of, of love under those circumstances. If God is killing the Egyptians, you'll, you'll see the name Elohim, which is a God of judgment, um, and the Torah will use that name because that's how God is revealing himself in that moment, under those circumstances. But in every circumstance, we're only talking about the same God. The only power that exists, Hashem. Okay. So now, I, I just always feel like as... Uh, <laughs> just just my responsibility to, to, to tell you that before we talk about deeper things, because if you, if you, if you talk about deeper things and you don't have a sufficient background, um, you basically under the, uh, under the good intentions of trying to spread more light, you're just spreading darkness because people just don't understand what you're saying ultimately. So, so that's why I think it's so important to review that point. Okay. So now, um, Hashem tells Moshe, Tell them, Ekia, Asher Ekia, has sent you. I will be what I will be. And by the way, this is one of the highest, highest names, and Kabbalistically, it's associated with the sphere of Keter, which is the highest of the ten spherot. Okay? We won't go into more detail than that, but it's a very exalted name. Now, what's the question? What's the difficulty with all this? Well, there are quite a few difficulties, but let's get to the first one. The first difficulty is in the next, in the next passage, God refers to himself as Ekia, without the Asher Ekia following it. 
In other words, God says to Moshe very clearly, tell them Ekiah Asher Ekiah sent you. And then, a moment later, God says, tell them Ekiah sent you. <laughs> now, it's not this. It's not God saying, hey, call me Theodore. No, 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 no. We're close. Call me Theo. <laughs> it's not It's not God sort of like giving himself a nickname, doing a little shorthand here. You know, we haven't got a lot of time. Let's just cut to the chase, you know. Um, it's not that. And and the, 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 the Medrash zeroes in and Rashi brings this because we need a very good explanation why God all of a sudden switched his name on a dime there, right? And this is going to really open up a lot of questions. This explanation is going to open up a lot of questions. And it's going to give us an insight into why this event took seven days, according to one opinion at least, right? Okay, so we're starting to make progress on our question. Why did this event take seven days? And what was Moshe hoping to accomplish over the course of those seven days by refusing to take the Jews out of Egypt? Okay, we have to keep everything in the forefront of our mind. Okay, so what does this name, I will be, what I will be mean. And Rashi explains that that God was telling Moshe to tell the Jewish people, just like I am with them in this exile, so too I will be with them in future exiles. To which Moshe Rabbeinu says, What? <laughs> You want me to tell them that that there are going to be more exiles? And then Hashem seeds the point, says, yes, you're right, Moshe. And that's why Hashem just refers to himself after that as Ekiah, meaning to say, Hashem agrees to Moshe's point and says, you know what, let's not discuss future exiles at this point right now. It's it's too much. It's too sensitive. Just tell them I am with them in this exile. Okay. So that's that that's already very interesting. That's very, very interesting. But now let's drill down even further, because this is now going to give us a window to answer our question. And I heard this from in a, a shir um, at Chabad, so I'm, I'm guessing it's from one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, um, but I can't tell you further than that in terms of the source of this idea, but it's, a, it's an awesome idea, which is... The reason why this event took seven days, what Moshe was hoping to accomplish, was that this should be the last exile. Does everyone hear that point? This is, this is, a, this is a very, very giant idea that I'm telling you right now. God begins this discussion by saying, take them out of Egypt, and I'm going to be with them in future exiles, And Moshe is now saying, no, God, this has to be the last exile. 
Now, again, let's, let's put this seven days into context, because seven days is a really long time. It's a really, really, really long time. And by the way, there are consequences for Moshe saying no to God for this period of time. At the end of this discussion, Moshe Rabbeinu has the kahuna taken away from him. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel. And because of his steadfastness, obstinance, refusal, whatever word you want to put on it, heroism, whatever word you want to put on it, God takes the kahuna away from Moshe and gives it to Aaron. So there were spiritual consequences from from Moshe doing what he did here, which is just interesting. You just have to keep all these things in mind. But again, I want to give you a context, a frame of reference to further appreciate what Moshe is doing here. When Avraham Avinu tries to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says to God, what if they're... 50 less righteous people. What if they're 10 less than that, right? And each word that Avraham Avinu is saying to God in this, like, negotiation is unbelievable. That he's, he's you know, remember, you have to juxtapose what Avraham Avinu is doing with, 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 with what Noah didn't do. When Hashem says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world and start start over, and Noah goes, okay, God, whatever you want, right? The job of a tzaddik is that, um, that I make my will your will, whatever you want, that's what we're doing. And now all of a sudden you have the, the evolution of the tzaddik, and you have Avraham Avinu saying, uh, what if there were ten less than that God? So it's unbelievable what Avraham is doing, but it wasn't seven days. <laughs> now imagine taking that to the lengths that Moshe Rabbeinu takes it. That Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing, let this be the last exile. Please, God. Please, God. Please, God. It's just awesome act of heroism. And, and it, it, it transforms your understanding of the event of Moshe sort of being worried or feeling overwhelmed. And just it just becomes like just this utmost heroism that Moshe is trying to redeem the entire world right now, forever. And now listen to this. Within the context of that understanding, I want to add something. Now when Hashem says, switches the name that he wants to be represented by, or switches the way, the circumstances in which he is going to reveal himself in the world, he now says, don't tell them just like them, just like I'm with him in this exile. I'll be with them in future exiles. Now, God tells Moshe, tell them I'm going to be with them in this exile. Meaning to say, it seems that Hashem 
agrees with Moshe. It seems like Hashem is saying to Moshe, you know what? You want this to be the last exile? Let's give it a try. We'll give it a try. This is what you want? We'll give it a try. Now, we have a Masorah, we have a tradition that had Moshe Rabbeinu led the people into the land of Israel, that would have been the final redemption. The fact that we have that tradition means that this actually could have been the final redemption, which makes it all the more heartbreaking that it wasn't. Because Moshe succeeds in persuading God, let's make this the last exile. And seemingly, God says, you know what? We'll give it a try. And yet it doesn't happen. And why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't it happen? Well, that's a very, very deep question. But I'm just going to give you a very meat and potatoes answer. Okay? But it's a real answer. Because Moshe takes his staff, and instead of speaking to the rock and have it pour out water, which would have been this ultimate revelation of godliness, that even a rock listens to God. Right? We were just talking about inanimate objects, about a burning bush. People would have been saying forever, a rock listens to God. Because Moshe spoke to it and it poured out water. How much more so do I have to listen to God? That was this awesome Kiddush Hashem that would have changed the entire world and it didn't happen. Why? Because Moshe hits the rock with his stick. Okay. So now, I want to go even deeper. I want to tell you something, something really that's going to I hope become very, very awesome. As part of this conversation at the burning bush, Hashem asks Moshe, what's in your hand? And Moshe says, a staff. All right, does that, does that sound familiar? Were we just talking about the staff? Were we just talking about the staff that Moshe hits the rock with and that everything ends? That it doesn't become the ultimate redemption? So isn't this interesting? And this is not my idea. The Medrash is talking about this. The Medrash is making the connection between God saying, what's in your hand, the staff, and the fact that Moshe ultimately is going to short-circuit the redemption with the staff. But, but it's not God trying to trip Moshe up. Please don't reach that conclusion because it's false. Unfortunately, Moshe triggers this series of events because Moshe asks and you see it in the Rashi. What schus, what merit do the Jews have to be redeemed? He asks God this. And if you decode this question in Rav Frimer, right, the Eretzvi, the Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Lublin, right, 
decodes this through the sources. And what Moshe was asking was, the Jewish people are worshiping idols in Egypt. If that's the case, what is their spiritual merit to be redeemed? And in doing so, what Moshe Rabbeinu did was he spoke Lashon Hara against the Jewish people. And so Hashem then says to Moshe Rabbeinu, what's that stick in your hand? Because you yourself are worthy of being hit with that stick. And of course, Moshe does become hit with that stick by using that stick to hit the rock. Do you see how the whole DNA of the entire story is all in the burning bush? How the whole potential redemption and the whole undoing of the future redemption, at least at that time period, the future redemption will come. But at that moment, it's all being played out and all of the elements are right there in that conversation between God and Moshe at the burning bush. Incredible. So what is Hashem saying to Moshe? And this is a very important lesson for all of us in our daily lives. And before I get to it, I'm going to tell you how you see the same idea between Hashem and Sarah. Okay? Hashem promises Sarah that she's going to have a baby and she's 90 years old, right? It seems like way out. And Sarah laughs, which, you know, on the face of it, seems to be an expression of disbelief. So God confronts Sarah with it a little bit later, and he says to Sarah, you laughed. And Sarah remarkably says, back to God, I didn't laugh. And God says, no, you laughed. So, wow, what is going on in that back and forth? So Reb Leibla Eger, one of the great Hasidic masters from about a hundred years ago, <clears throat> explains it in the following way. He says, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. She does laugh. But God forbid, Sarah, our, our matriarch, the, the foundation of the Jewish people, God forbid you should think for a moment that she didn't believe in God. So then why did she laugh? What was this expression of disbelief with her laughter? She didn't believe in herself. She thought that she was going to do some, some avera, some mistake that would undo the blessing that God was granting her. She didn't have sufficient confidence in herself. And so she laughed. And that's why she said to God, I didn't laugh. Because what she was saying was, it's not that I don't believe in you, it's that I didn't believe in me. And God answers back, no, you did laugh. Meaning what? And I listened very carefully as Reb Shlomo would say, open up your hearts. God was saying back to Sarah, I believe in you. So if you don't believe in you, you don't believe in me. 
In other words, an aspect of believing in God is believing in yourself because God believes in you. So if you don't believe in you, you don't believe in God because God believes in you. And this is exactly what God was telling Moshe Rabbeinu. You're asking, what's the merit of the Jewish people that they're worshiping idols? I believe in the Jewish people, says God. Therefore, you have to believe in the Jewish people. Because if you don't believe in the Jewish people, you don't believe in me because I believe in the Jewish people, says God. And now let's take this to the next step because this is a very real personal thing about you and me today. The Rambam codifies, codifies that the Jewish people, that's you and me, that's all of us, are going to do tshuva, are going to return to God, all of us, before Mashiach comes. Which means no one has any right at all to give up on the Jewish people. Because God believes in the Jewish people. Which means you have to believe in the Jewish people if you want to believe in God. And maybe we're not holding at the level that we need to be holding at right now. Maybe. But we will get there. And we have to have confidence in each other that we're going to get there and not to lose faith or hope in each other. Because God believes in us. And you can't call yourself a believer in God if you lose faith in the Jewish people. Because God believes in the Jewish people. So if you want to believe in God, you also have to believe in the Jewish people. A very, very critical, game-changing idea there. Very important. Very, very important. All right. Now I want to go even deeper. I want to go even deeper. You see, because it's possible, as we see in this instance, that Moshe Rabbeinu even spoke Lashon Hara about the Jewish people. Okay? We see him as our greatest defender, and we see how he's trying to make this the ultimate redemption, and chas v'shalom, God forbid, I should be saying anything against Moshe Rabbeinu, even an iota, God forbid. It's not the case. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. But I'm just telling you what the sources say right now. But I want to take it even deeper. Because listen to this. It's possible to also speak Lashon Hara, which is evil speech, right? It's possible to speak Lashon Hara against God. And how does that work, right? So without going into the depths of it, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite deep, it's quite deep but I'm going to try to make it very real and practical, okay? Rav Frimmer reframes the whole eating of the tree of knowledge as our accepting Lashon Hara against God. Because if you remember, in other words, 
Whatever level we're at in terms of our learning, we have an obligation to go deeper, to get, to get even more toward the truth, even more toward the truth, right? But remember, if you want to go deeper, you have to remember what it is you already know. You know, I heard something so beautiful from R.A. Coopersmith, who's one of the original Hasidim of Reb Shlomo. He was the one who, with uh, Elias Sukkot, got the lease on the first House of Love and Prayer in San Francisco, right? He procured the lease. Amazing. So he said in the name of Reb Shlomo, how to tell if someone is your Rebbe or not, right? So, so, so Reb Shlomo said, if someone tells you something you didn't know before, that's sweet and it's cute. But if some if someone tells you something that resonates inside you and you realize, I knew that, but now I know that I know it. That's your Rebbe. <laughs> I'll say it again because that's so awesome. If someone tells you something that you didn't know before, right? Maybe that makes them your rabbi. But how do you know if someone's your Rebbe, right? Because I heard on another occasion, Reb Shlomo said, a rabbi tells you something you didn't know before. A Rebbe connects you to the deepest aspects of your own self. So, if someone tells you something that resonates within you and you say, I already knew that, but now I know that I know that. That's your Rebbe, right? Or at least one side. That's one side anyway. Okay. So, so the snake tells Adam and Chava, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of knowledge because then you'll become God too. And, and God doesn't want you as a rival to him. God wants all that power to himself. So therefore, he's told you not to eat from the tree. Again, on a very practical level for you and me in our daily lives, Lush and Hara is like this um, very multi-tentacled, um, awful uh, force in the world. It's, it's, it's really... You know, we talk about it in, in this context, it would be appropriate to use this phrase as the root of all evil, really, honestly, honestly. And there are different halachic dimensions to it that we have to fully appreciate. One of the halachic dimensions of it is that if you speak it, um, that's one level. But if you listen to it and accept it, it's counted as though you spoke it. Do, do you understand? Accepting Lashon Hara, accepting and believing evil speech from someone, halakhically speaking, is the equivalent of speaking it yourself. So what do you do if Lashon Hara is being spoken? Well, there's some practical advice. One one easy way is to change the subject. Um, depending on the circumstances and how well you know the people, you can refute it. 
But if you are going to refute it, you have to be very careful that you're not going to create more hatred by creating an argument and or embarrassing the person that you're correcting. So you have to be very careful with that. Sometimes the, 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 the best thing is just to change the subject. And if it's multiple people and they'll all have jumped on the Lush and Horror train and everything like that, you stand up and you leave the room. And, and that's how you remove yourself from it. Um, because it's, uh, it's, it's a very terrible force in the world. Okay. But, but let's get back to the depths of this. Because we're almost there, but we're on the precipice of an awesome, awesome thought. And that is that the roots of eating from the tree of knowledge, that really the primary, the primary problem was not the eating of the fruit itself, but was believing that God had evil intent for us. Okay. So what does that mean on a practical basis? Because now I really want to drill down into our core relationship with God. You know, sometimes I like to talk about these, uh, these, these talks as couples therapy between us and God. Well, here's, here's a big couple ther- couples therapy moment, okay? If you really want to improve your relationship with God, just open up your hearts and try to, try to hear the following. What is the premise of this world that we live in? this dimension that we live in. What is the premise of it? And I will tell you what it is. Concealment. God conceals himself. Um, Now remember, when God conceals himself, he's no less present. He's just concealed, right? Let's say I put a mask on and I'm standing in front of you and I put a mask on. I am 100% as present as I was before I put on the mask, but now I'm wearing a mask, but I'm no less present. When God conceals himself within this attribute that we call the natural order, God is no less present in the world. He's 100% equally present. He's just more concealed. Okay. So what I'm telling you is that the premise of this dimension that we live in is concealment. Now the question is why? Why why did God conceal himself in this world? And it's for one very direct answer. There's one direct answer. And that is to create the opportunity for us to have free choice. It's, It's really as simple as that. I know we're dealing with the most lofty ideas right now, which are cutting to the core of absolutely everything, but it's as simple as that. The premise is God conceals himself, but God is equally here. Why does he do it? In order to give us the opportunity to have free choice. Why does God want us to have free choice? Because in the higher dimensions All of the angels don't have any free choice because God is right before them. Not the entirety of God, but but a quantumly higher than than is revealed to us is before the angels. And the angels are 
paralyzed before the will of God and can't do anything wrong. God envisioned a creation that has the ability to do something wrong and then resists that impulse and does something right. It's awesome. We're the only creatures in the entire, in all the spiritual worlds that have the ability to choose to serve God, to resist wrongdoing and to do the right thing. It's awesome. It's awesome. And it says the angels gasp in envy at our ability to do this. Okay. Now listen to this. When God conceals himself, and and then why does he want us to have free choice? Okay. So that he can give us reward. So that he can give us his perfect good in a perfect way. If God just wanted to reward us and we didn't do anything good for it, there would be a lacking in our ability to receive it. It's called Nahamed Kasufa, which means the bread of shame. The Ramchal discusses this. The idea that God is good and he wants to share the ultimate good with his creation. What is the perfect good? It's God himself. God wants to share God with us. But how does he do it? How does he give the perfect good in the perfect way? If he just gives this to us for free, then we feel a lacking because we didn't earn it. So God creates a world where we can earn that good. And then God can give us the perfect good in a perfect way. Because at this time, we've earned it. It's, it's, it all, it's, it's a beautiful construct. It's awesome. Everything ties together perfectly. And there's way more to it, by the way. But it all begins with concealment. But as we can see, this concealment is for our benefit. It's coming from a place of love so that we can be even closer to God for all eternity and to earn all the good and to do an act of service to God that no other creature in no other spiritual dimension is able to do. But now listen to this. God opens himself up to Lashon Hara when God conceals himself. Because God conceals himself, we can say the following. God doesn't exist at all. God made the world, but then he abandoned the world. God hates us. That's why he doesn't interact with us. That's why he conceals himself from us. Do you hear all of this lush and horror that can be said against God? And so, this comes back down to our everyday reality, that couple's therapy, right? And we have the opportunity to not even accept the premise of concealment. (laughs) And by the way, that's what all these talks are about. The fact that God is right in front of you, with you at all times, in every situation, that you are never alone. And this concept of concealment doesn't exist at all because God is all around you constantly. All you have to do is open your eyes to see it. 
Okay, we'll stop there. The sort of the take-home point that I really want to emphasize here is that it's very important for us not to believe or speak Lashon Hara against God and to understand that because God is concealed in this world, this is like the ultimate opportunity for us to sort of like trampoline off the darkness and to bring tremendous light into the world and an opportunity into the world. This, this is a tremendous blessing for us, um, this concealment. But this concealment can be represented as the only truth of the world is science. And there's nothing behind the science, right? right. right? Or there's, or or God has abandoned the world. Even if you believe in a creator, He long abandoned the world. There's so much lush and horror that's said about God that people accept, and we have to understand that that is at the very root of our relationship and how we understand God, and that we have to be very, you know, God calls Himself by a very surprising word. God calls himself a jealous God. <laughs> so how are we to understand that? It's such a, you know, God uses, um, we use this term kaviocho, which means humanly speaking, right? God, as I like to say, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies, right? So, so, so when God refers to human traits, these are not anything that, that God has no, God has no physicality. That's a core premise of Torah, of Judaism. But it's just so that we can wrap our minds around something that's very lofty. Um, God is sort of putting it in, in these terms so that we can begin to understand it. So what does it mean that God is a jealous God? Why does God call himself jealous? So, so a friend of mine said, you know something? Um, you know, if, uh, if, um, if, if, if uh, let's say in this instance, this, it's, a, it's a woman, right? And let's say she's married. And let's say another man is talking to her, let's say, trying to flirt with her, say, right? He's being extra friendly to her. She said, I I want my husband to be jealous. (laughs) In other words, I'm not, she's not trying to make her husband jealous, but, but, but it's a sign of her husband's interest in her that he'd be saying, hey, what the, what's going on over there? That, that's all right. So when God describes himself as a jealous God, God's saying, I care if you care about falsehood. <laughs> I don't want you looking over there. <laughs> what, what are you doing with that? Stay away from that. And, and it's a sign of God's genuine, you know, God's beyond emotions even, but, but nonetheless, God created emotions. So, but God is showing that he's like intensely involved in, in our lives and in our emotional lives as well. And so therefore God attributes this word to himself as a jealous God, which is to say that, that God cares and he's involved. So he's invested. A hundred percent. So, so I'm saying that we have to jealously guard any slander that's spoken against God, because it it will fundamentally 
uproot and corrupt our understanding of what this whole concept of concealment is. And it and God is making himself so vulnerable by allowing himself to be concealed and by allowing all these falsehoods to be put upon him because he conceals himself, which is just to create this opportunity for free choice and reward for us. That it's a very delicate situation. And of course, it becomes exploited from the very first moments of creation. You know, God makes himself such an open target, so to speak, that the snake immediately seizes on it from the very outset of creation. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.